Okay, Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, and they said, He's out of his mind. Down, and the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Thank you. Right, quite a long passage. Um, And uh, as we've seen already in the book of Mark, the controversy has been building up against Jesus. And the religious leaders, they're being pretty much offended by virtually everything that Jesus says and does. So it's no surprise as we come to the end of chapter 3 that they're out to really say something rather offensive against him, which we've just heard. Now, Mark certainly wants us to understand that um, the pressure is building against Jesus, but that is not the main thing that he wants us to see. Now, what is interesting about this little passage, this little group of stories, is the way in which Mark lays them out. Mark sometimes writes like a sandwich. Yeah, the thing you eat. You heard me right, a sandwich. So he takes one story and he divides it into two and then he puts a rather juicy story in the middle. So as we look at these few verses, um, on either side of verses 22 to 30, Mark is talking about Jesus' mother and brothers. So in verses 20 and 21, we read how Jesus' family think he's gone crazy. He's mad. At the other end of this, of it, in verses 31 to 35, Jesus and mother, they try to control him. Okay, so we've got, imagine two slices of bread, white, whole meal, don't really mind, whatever, whatever suits you, okay, on either side, and then in the middle, there's this rather juicy story, this central sandwich filler right in the middle with this altercation that Jesus has with the religious leaders. They say he's demonic, and then he comes back and he makes perhaps some rather disturbing claims about what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Before 
we even dream of taking a bite of this sandwich, we first of all need to look at the whole picture and ask the question, what does the central filling, what does the central story have to do with the outer part, with the two pieces of bread? What, how does this whole thing fit together? What is the overlying principle that Mark and Jesus want us to see? What's it all about? Well, the overlying thing is to do with family. It's all about family. That's what Mark wants us to begin to understand. There are many ways of describing the kingdom of God, but perhaps one of the most helpful ways is to think about it in terms of family. So in this section of scripture, filled with some surprising statements that we need to explain and we need to begin to understand, but once we begin to consider all of them, it leads us to a place of rich and wonderful truth that we can belong to Jesus. We come into a new family. Now, friends and family let us down. Even the best of them, we're all human. We sometimes make mistakes. You know, it happens. It just happens. However, when we are adopted into Jesus' family, he will never disown you. That's where we're going, okay? I want to tell you a story, Rachel. Okay. Author Keith Miller tells of an outgoing 40-year-old woman who was part of a group that he led. Here is her story. When I was a tiny little girl, my parents died and I was put in an orphanage. I was not pretty at all and no one seemed to want me, but I longed to be adopted and loved by a family as far back as I can remember. I thought about it day and night, but everything I did seemed to go wrong. I must have tried too hard to please the people who came to look, at, look me over, and what I did was to drive them away. But then one day, the head of the orphanage told me that a family was coming to take me home with them. I was so excited that I jumped up and down and cried like a little baby. The matron reminded me that I was on trial, and this might not be a permanent arrangement, but I just knew that somehow it would work out. So... I went with this family and I started school. I was the happiest little girl you could imagine and life began to open up for me just a little. But then one day, a few months later, I skipped home from school and ran into the front door of the big old house we lived in. No one was at home, but in the middle of the front hall was my battered suitcase with my little coat thrown across it. As I stood there, it suddenly dawned on me what it meant. I didn't belong there anymore. Miller reports that when the woman stopped speaking, there was hardly a dry eye in the group. But then she cleared her throat and said, almost matter-of-factly, this happened to me seven times before I was 13. But wait, don't feel bad for me. It was experiences like these that ultimately brought me to God, and there I found what I had always longed for, 
a place, a sense of belonging and a forever family. So before we begin to pull this sandwich apart, do not forget that everything we look at in these stories is connected to family, to a new family, to God's family, to a place, to a sense of belonging, to a forever family. So let's, get, let's give it a go. We get into the first little section here in verses 20 to 21. We see how Jesus is unsettling his family. In fact, Jesus' family are getting a bit fed up with him if truth was known. Can you imagine for a moment what it must be like if you have a famous brother and all the time you open the front door of your house and there are just crowds of people out there wanting to speak to him, wanting to hear what he has to say, just demands on you, wanting an interview with you. Perhaps the paparazzi are there taking photographs. You cannot move. You cannot breathe. Reporters are always asking you questions. You have just about had enough of the whole thing. This is the scene in Nazareth at this particular moment. And his family, they have had enough. Things just, just are going out of control. And people are always just calling on Jesus just to heal the sick or to, to cast out demons. It just never seems to end for any of them. In fact, Jesus is out preaching and teaching. He's calling people sinners. He's calling them to repentance. And Jesus' family are beginning to think, what are the neighbors thinking of all of this? It's mad. You know, it's just mad. And it's H.G. Wells who says that people are more concerned about their neighbors have to say than what God has to say. And that would seem to be certainly true of Jesus' mother and brother at this particular time. And they are embarrassed by him. They, they just want to make excuses for him. They can't even enjoy a quiet cup of tea without some commotion being caused by Jesus. And so they try to bring him back into their home. They go out to try and find him, to pull him back in again. In fact, they are thinking, you know what? Jesus has completely gone mad. After all, that's what the neighbors are saying. That's what everybody else is saying. So it's got to be true. And to be fair, the, the, things, the, the evidence seems to be stacking up against him. Jesus has left his family business. He could have been a good carpenter. But no, he goes out to preach and teach. No income from that. What a waste of time that is. What, what, what must he be thinking? And also his choice of friends. He's, he's chosen to hang around with, with, an, um, with fishermen. He's chosen to even hang around with, with an ex-tax collector. Even an ex-terrorist. He's lost it, hasn't he? Got to have. That is the only conclusion that... His mum and his brothers have come to. Jesus has finally lost it. However, Jesus appears to be almost deliberately unsettling his family. He's just shaking things up a little bit. I don't know where you, how much you know about Jesus, but Jesus is quite radical in what he says and what he does. And sometimes 
people find that he is a little bit unnerving, even unsettles them. That's certainly how the mother and brothers were feeling at this particular moment. But hold that thought. I want to move into the next section. So that's the first layer of bread, and we come into the rather juicy center filling. And if Jesus' family thought he had gone crazy, the religious people who had come down from Jerusalem, they are much, much harsher against him because they think that he is from the devil. And they make some rather venomous and some rather harsh allegations against him. They say he is possessed by Beelzebub in verse 22. However, Jesus just takes this opportunity to teach about the kingdom of God, to teach about the family of God. And what he wants them to grasp is that this new family has got the most surprising source for his members. The most surprising source of people into this new family. You see, the logic of the religious people, of the teachers, went something like this. Now, they've seen all the miracles, okay? They can't deny them. All the healings, all the demons being cast out. So, as far as they're concerned, this man, Jesus, he has got serious power. He's able to do these amazing things. But in their mind, they believe if he is not from God, so therefore logic would dictate if he's not from God, he's got to be from Satan, That's where they're thinking, okay? Not from God, therefore got to be from Satan. And because he can do such amazing, powerful things, therefore he must be controlled by some really, really strong demon. So they say he's from Beelzebub. Now, in our modern sort of Western culture, in our our sort of um, British culture, we don't talk a lot about this stuff, do we? It's not something you talk about over tea or over lunch at work, I don't think. No? No, 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 how do I? And however, we must not ignore this. You see, Satan and demons are very, very real. And there is a spiritual battle that is going on over your life, over our families over our city, over our nation, and we must not ignore it. It's important that we develop a very healthy but biblical understanding of demons and of spiritual warfare, and that we do not ignore it. In fact, in First Peter, it tells us to be careful. It warns us. It says that, the, that the, the Satan is like a roaring lion prowling around, like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So as we step out into faith in Jesus, we step into a battle. We do. Faith in Jesus, we step into this battle. But we do not step into paranoia nor into fear because we come to Jesus who is more powerful, who is victorious over everything and everyone. And I love what it says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, which says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Yeah, if God is for us, who can be against us? And Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, 
is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall troubles or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, I think it's covered everything there, shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Guys, this is the truth of God's word. And when temptation comes against us, when challenges come against us, when the enemy comes against us, we turn to God's word. We stand on the security of that because God is for us. He is with us. This is the truth of the Bible. Jesus, in responding to their cutting remarks, he gives two illustrations. He tells two stories, just very logical, common sense arguments against what the religious people have said. And he says, if a kingdom or a family is fighting or arguing against itself, there's only one logical outcome. It's going to fall apart. Now, I've got a brother and a sister, and we, we get on well. I, I love them dearly. But if I'm just always running them down or gossiping behind their back or trying to, to hurt them in some way or other, it's not going to be long before they stop talking to me. And, to, and it's not going to be long before our relationship breaks down. And very, very soon, you find that, we, that the Cooper family just doesn't exist. It's gone. We will still have the same parents, but our family would be gone. And this applies to families big and small. It applies to churches. It applies to church plants. And guys, listen, we got to be so careful. What we say, how we speak, how we gossip, we've got to be so careful that we speak words of encouragement to bring people up. We're not tearing people down. We're building God's kingdom, not destroying it. Jesus, Jesus is simply defending himself here. He says, he says he's not, he's not um, from Satan, nor is he possessed by Satan. Instead, the opposite is actually true, because Jesus is on the offensive against Satan. And he is the enemy, and Jesus wants to plunder his territory, to reclaim lives, to set people free And then we get to a third little parable, a third little story here that just, I think, emphasizes the extent of the attack. In verse 27, it says, but no one can enter the strong man's home or house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. You see, not only is Jesus opposed to Satan, but he is stronger than Satan, and he is the only one who can bind Satan and go into his house and go into his family and rescue people from there. And folks, listen, look at me for a moment. This is, this is the surprising source of Jesus' new family. 
This new family of Jesus is going to be literally plucked from under the nose of Satan, plucked from the house of Satan, plucked from the family of Satan. Amazing. Jesus, Jesus is the strong one. He is the mighty one. Perhaps you, maybe even unknowingly, belonging to Satan's family, well, Jesus just comes in and he just literally plucks people from Satan's house, from Satan's family, and he invites them in. Paul writes a similar thing in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the princes of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, once you were in Satan's family, but God. So Paul writes, but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved. You know what Paul and Jesus are saying here? They're saying either you are in Jesus' family, are you in, are in Satan's family? It's quite blunt. You're either in Jesus' family or in Satan's family. And if you are not trusting in Jesus as your Savior, you are in Satan's family. We talked a little bit about this last week for those who were over at the, the weekend away. Jeremy was, was saying something similar to this. Perhaps even now Satan is, is almost whispering in your ear and saying, don't listen. Don't, don't listen to this. When the gospel is preached so often, he comes and he, and he says, don't listen. You, you don't want to bother that sort of stuff. You know, you're, you're quite good as you are. You're, you're quite happy as you are. You don't need Jesus. You, in fact, you could, never, you could never do it anyway. You'd just make a fool of yourself. So don't. Don't listen. Can I encourage you to listen to Jesus because he is the powerful one. He is the one who on the cross won the victory and Satan is tied and he cannot hold you. He will lie to you and he does. He will cheat you and he does. He will deceive you and he does, but he cannot hold you. And there are many people who are being rescued from Satan's family, right from under the nose of Satan. We celebrated two weeks ago, didn't we, when we baptized three folks just, be, just in, in the pool here and just heard their wonderful stories of what Jesus has done and is doing in their lives. And Jesus is constantly plundering Satan's territories. It's wonderful. And this afternoon... You also have an opportunity to join the family of Jesus. You know, the most wonderful news is this. 
is that as you come by faith to Jesus, every sin will be forgiven. All those dark things, all those things that maybe you're ashamed of, all those things you wouldn't want anybody else to know about, they will be forgiven because of Jesus' death on the cross. Be assured. Be assured that there's nothing that you have done up to this point that can stop you from coming to Jesus. There's nothing that you have done that Jesus cannot deal with. There's no sin too big for him to forgive. You've got to hear this. If you admit your sin, if you believe in Jesus and his death and resurrection, if you commit yourself to him, but... There is one thing that can prevent you from becoming a Christian. The religious leaders saw the work of God in the life of Jesus and they refused to believe it for what it was. So as Jesus begins to tell these stories, he talks about this thing about them blaspheming the Holy Spirit by calling the loving works of God something that was evil. And this is unforgivable. It's unforgivable, unforgivable because it is an attitude that keeps us away from the only place where we can possibly find forgiveness, Jesus Christ. But listen, God, because he's a God of mercy, would even have forgiven them if they had turned to him in repentance. And there's much written and said about this term um, to, be, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I just want to quickly summarize what I think Jesus is saying here under sort of two main headings. The first is this. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit doesn't mean, okay, with me? It doesn't mean someone who is doubting or someone who is asking questions or someone who has got some concerns. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples, Thomas, he doubted him over and over again, and yet he still is in the family of Jesus. The problem is when we reject Jesus and God's grace and the gift of salvation and ignore the guilt that is in our hearts because of conviction of sins over and over and over again to the point where we begin to believe that Jesus is evil. This is the position that the scribes had got to in verse 30 and why Jesus says they had blasphemed the Holy Spirit. The second thought is this. We need Jesus, but there is no chance that you will ever turn to Jesus if you despise him. And that, my friends, is a very, very dangerous place to be. If you need a doctor, maybe you need some surgery, and you go along to a doctor... But you believe that doctor is either some sort of serial killer or perhaps just out to cause you serious harm. You're not going to put your trust in him. You're not going to ask him for help, are you? 
in a similar way, if we believe that Jesus is either mad or evil or, or just some sort of delusional creation of the church, we are never going to put our trust in him for salvation. And you blaspheme the Holy Spirit when you reject Jesus in favor of a lie. This is, this is strong stuff, and I'm so, somewhat sorry about this, but it's, it's what the Bible says. But I would say this, that there is still hope for everyone here. There's always hope while we have breath, when we turn to Jesus. See, we come to Jesus Christ by faith. Each one of us comes in exactly the same way as sinners needing help. And as we respond to him, he welcomes you with open arms. He welcomes you in. leads into one last little thought. Everyone, everyone can belong to Jesus. See, in a culture like the Jewish culture where family was everything, it's almost scandalous to see how Jesus sort of is dismissive of his family. Even in our culture, actually, he sort of seems a little bit rude in these last few verses. But the truth is that Jesus must come first. In Matthew chapter 10, it says, and, any, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, the tricky thing about this whole thing is that actually his mother and brothers want the best for him. They're, they're just concerned for him. They want, they, they, they're concerned about the, the sort of frenetic pace of his life. But just like the religious teachers, they have missed the main point and therefore they have failed to understand what Jesus wants them to see. So, so does Jesus just want his family to, does he want to, to ditch his family? Does he just does he not love them anymore? Does he want rid of them? Well, of course not. Jesus loves and cares for them dearly. He loves everyone. He loves his mother. He loves his, his brother as well. But he wants them to understand that he is preparing them to see a bigger family, to see an eternal family that they have not as yet began to understand. See, it is that Jesus' mum and brothers need to be shaken, need to be unsettled a little bit, to realize that although family is important, it is not the most important thing. The earthly family is not the most important thing because they, just like everyone else, have spiritual needs. So what I want to do just as we finish is just to mention three applications very quickly. The first is this. All people, including his mother and brother, need to enter the family of God in the same way through faith in Jesus Christ. See, not even being a mother of Jesus or a brother of Jesus can guarantee you salvation. So just because you've got a Christian parent or a Christian relative of some sort or even a Christian friend, that will not make you a Christian. You must make that step for yourself. Something you must do 
for yourself. In fact, we read a little bit later on in the book of Acts that Jesus' family do trust in Jesus. Jesus' mother, Mary, was one of those in Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2 in that upper room as they waited for the Holy Spirit to come down on the disciples. She got it. She trusted Jesus. She understood. Also, Jesus' brothers also understood. They were one of the founding members of the new, of, of the early church. James, one of the senior pastors in the early church, wrote a book which he conveniently called after himself, James, but also the little book right before Revelations called Jude. Guess who wrote that one as well? Jude, obviously. One of Jesus' brothers. They got it. They understood. They understood that they had to come to Jesus and put their trust in Jesus for themselves. There is only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. And each one of us must do what Jesus' mother and brothers also did. And come to Jesus by faith. The second application is that Jesus' family supersedes all earthly families. Now, it's not that earthly families are unimportant. Of course they are important. The Bible has got lots to say about how important families are. In fact, it is God's way of demonstrating and teaching the love of God. But Jesus' family there is a stronger and an eternal link. This is a family that will never end. It is an everlasting kingdom with God as our father. It's also a massive family. It is huge. It just covers the whole, the whole world. There are, there are, you have got brothers and sisters in every continent of this world. New Zealand, Africa, South America. You throw one out there. It's there. You have brothers and sisters all over this world. I wonder if you ever traveled a little bit and been to another church, perhaps in a culture that you've never been to before. You ever felt that link, that connection with other Christians? Even you've got nothing else in common? It's true, isn't it? Brothers and sisters in Christ. Also, this is a family where you will always belong. Nothing can separate you from your heavenly father, from Jesus' family. And Jesus says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sisters. See, in Jesus Christ, we have a big brother who will never let us down, who will do anything for you. In fact, he already has. He gives his life for you. He gives everything that you might come and be part of his family. Then the last thing is this. We need to learn to care for each other just as Jesus loves us. Have a little look around. Go on, have a look. You loud. Family, yeah? If you belong to Jesus, this is family. You might not like everything you see. I'm sorry about that. (laughs) But this is family. And we need to live together as family together. We need to care for one another. We need to love one another. We need to look out for one another. We need to be forgiving one another. We need to do family together. We've talked a little bit already this year about being extended family on mission together. 
This is so important we get this. Guys, if we can get this, if we can truly live out and know what it means to live family together with looking up and worship at God, looking in in terms of our, our, our connecting and loving one another, looking out in mission, we don't just change what we see here. I believe we change the community around us. We change our city and we bring glory to God. Let's stand together.